Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. How's it going? Good. What you got for me this week? Um, well, I want to, uh, I guess, preface this one with a trigger warning um, before we start talking about it, is that um, what I'm going to talk about today and what I wanted to chat with you about today is a little bit sad, and it has to do with um, death. So... If that's going to be something triggering to people, um, maybe skip forward uh, in the in the past this. Um, so here's the story. So many, many years ago, probably 12 to 14 years ago now, um, I was working at, a, you know, as it is a um, assistive technology person uh, supporting the speech therapist and teacher at a middle school. And there was this girl and she was one of the first girls that we were starting to, I mean, first really students at all, that we were starting to explore robust high-tech AAC on an iPad. Um, and we were working closely together, uh, this girl and her teachers and her speech therapists, and we were, um, you know, making all sorts of mistakes and making all sorts of progress and was seeing her... Um, uh, just make gains with learning how to say certain words and just all the things, right? And I really uh, connected with uh, this girl and had a lot of fun, you know, where I'd be one of those things like, okay, my role is not to be the one modeling. My role is to help them learn how to model, right? Like, I just want to go and play with this kid, you know, uh, and sit next to them. And and um, she's she, she had a certain way of, like... Um, like requesting these, uh, like her, her drinks and I would like to be there and drink with her. You know what I mean? Like, anyway, it's just a thing. It was just a thing. Like I connected with this student, but then as things go, I, um, I of course have, have since then become an administrator that supports the team of people that did what I, that do what I did. And, um, I don't know, I just lost track of, of this girl over the years. You know, we have a, I work in a school district that is a large school district. We're close to 100 schools and supporting a lot of schools. And so, you know, I just lost track of her. And um, fast forward to about, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a school and I was in a, um, this was a high school. And on the bulletin board, there was this girl's picture. And I turned to the teacher and I was like, oh my gosh, how's so-and-so doing? She's, um, I, I so miss her. We had so much fun together. And I saw the picture on the on the board, but I just saw it like sort of the corner of my eye and sort of glanced at it and recognized her. What I didn't notice was the date next to her name. And that's when the teacher said, oh, Chris, you didn't hear? She passed away about two years ago. And I looked at the date and I see what it was. And I was like, oh, oh you know, like it was... Um, this gut punch moment because I didn't know I had I again I had lost track of of you know, there's so many students and it just really sent me down a uh, uh, a path of thinking about not just her but all the other students that have you know had these sort of great connecting moments where they they I think I had an influence on their life and they certainly have had a huge influence on my life um, and uh you know, just connecting with kids level, but then also professionally, what I've learned from like, like this girl back in the day, it was like, okay, we're going to focus on these two words. And then, um, when she's mastered these two words, then we're going to move on to the next two words, which of course now people are like, they're, they're throwing stuff at the radio as they're listening to us right now. Chris, what are you doing? No, we don't just wait for two words. We, we do these, we do some words and then we move on to other words and we circle back around and we don't get stuck on two, but this was like 15 years, you know, 14, 15, many years ago, we were just learning how to do that. And so I learned from her, like, geez, if we just stuck, if, if we just stuck with these two words, she's she could be stuck on these two words for years. You know, we got to start teaching more words than this. Um, she taught me that, you know, or I certainly reinforced what I was hearing from other people about that. Um, it was a, just an aha moment with a connection with what I'm hearing from others and the student. Um, so anyway, it was just a, 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 sh a shocking moment, a sad moment, a reflective moment. And I, I say that because I feel like in the world of education, people listening to this podcast, in the world of um, uh, working with clients, this is something that, that we uh, people have dealt with or you're going to deal with. Um, and I don't know, I'm just, I just wanted to share it with my bestie, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's a really hard thing, especially when you feel like 
you know, so connected to a student and inevitably our students, you know, keep moving through school. They keep, you know, moving through life. And just the fact of saying goodbye to some of our students, because we're not going to have them on our caseload anymore is really sad. Um, but you know, we also work with a population of kids that oftentimes have lots of medical conditions, um, on top of complex communication challenges. So, you know, it's really hard for, I think families, especially, um, I always am reminding myself that, you know, communication isn't always a top priority, um, especially when you have a student or a child who's medically fragile. It's just like we're, you know, a lot of my families are in and out of the hospital and, you know, trying different medical interventions. And, you know, there's so much that goes into these kids that have such complex bodies and complex needs. Um, and so I think that that's always a constant reminder too, because I'm so eager to get in there and, and teach everyone how to model and, you know, ask families, how's it going at home? Like, have you been modeling? And, you know, if you're, you have a child who has really complex medical needs, you might not be modeling. Like you're like, I was in the hospital for, you know, the last week because, you know, my child had a seizure or, you know, all the other kind of things that happen. So I feel like it's also just a good reminder that, you know, we have to be really sensitive to families who have children with complex medical needs um, because it's just like survival mode oftentimes in these households. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, just today, I was having a conversation with one of the, the, the people that I work with, and she was described. We, we have someone new coming onto the team. So she was describing to this other person, and I just happened to be in the room, about students. It's just like, oh, you, who you're about to meet is XXX, and here's their, um, what I've learned while I've been working with them. And she this she was describing, she's like, you know, we're, we're thinking there might be some sort of vision difficulties because of his gait and the way he's reaching for things. And and we're focused on language, but really there's all these other medical things going on. It's like, well, when's the right time to talk to the parents about this? Is this the right? Because they seem to be wrestling with just keeping the child healthy. So all of that, of course, we, we don't want to we don't want to overwhelm, but we also want to share what we need to share. We want to keep our eyes on the prize of, of generative language, but also just, you know, making sure people are feeling secure in their um, in their day to day, you know, that they're doing the best they can. Yeah. And I also think it really can help inform clinically what we're doing with, with kids with complex medical needs. You know, we need to be teaching them about body parts and modeling language about feelings and being hurt and feeling sick and tired and all those things too. You know, I think we need to do that with all of our students, but I especially think we need to prioritize that when we know students are going through a lot of challenges with their bodies, um, you know, giving language to that. And I feel like oftentimes that's what families who, you know, come to me in my practice, it's the number one thing is like, I don't know when they don't feel good. Like, I don't know what's going on in their bodies. Um, I don't know how to help them, but you know, they, they didn't sleep last night or, you know, they are crying all day today. You know, how challenging that must be to be doing everything you can to help your child, but they don't have the communication skills to tell you what's going on inside their bodies. Um, so we can do, you know, our due diligence as clinicians and educators in making sure that vocabulary is programmed into their AAC system and we're using lots of opportunities to teach around, you know, all of that different language so that kids are able to advocate and start understanding how to communicate about what's happening in their bodies. Excellent point. Just a few weeks ago, we had the Gemma White episode where we were talking all about that. Um, and then maybe one other point that I'd want to bring out here is that in school districts like the one that I work with and the school districts that you work with, these are often like big, big multi-school, multi-administrator organizations, right? Um, and I just want to like reflect on the parents that listen here that um, like the, the parent of this child probably will have no idea. They maybe met, met me once or twice because I wasn't really the primary person. I was support to the other people, right? Um, but they would have no idea of the profound uh, shift this this their daughter had on me, right? And I feel like that is something that people need to be aware of, and that is that 
administrators in these uh, in these large school districts and beyond. I mean, any administrator really. We didn't get into it to have like. I don't know. We don't like, no one gets into education for like, oh, the money, you know, no one gets into education for the summers off, right? You get into education because you want to help families and kids and connect with kids. And, um, and I could easily see people listening, going, starting to think of this large entity that people might lose that. But this kid, this, Meaning administrators might lose the connection with kids, but I, that has not been my experience. The administrators that I work with, we're all out for the kids. It's not about uh, anything else other than that, you know? Um, and when, when we reflect on these kids that make a profound difference in our life, I mean, everyone leaves a, it leaves a mark, but this kid especially let a, left a mark. Um, and when they're no longer with us and we don't get to say goodbye, you know what I mean? We don't, we don't get to say goodbye. Even if they move to North Carolina, do you know what I mean? I didn't get to say goodbye. Um, it's, uh, it leaves its toll a little bit because that's why we do what we do. We do it to help families and help kids. I think the other thing is we all as clinicians and educators, we have those kids who we just will be seared into our memory forever, right? Because they made an impact for whatever reason that was, whatever time in our life that we were in and whatever gem of wisdom we learned because of them, or even just the connection we had with them. And I think maybe, you know, maybe a, a good kind of takeaway is to try to communicate that to families. Um, I feel like oftentimes families are the ones saying, oh my gosh, Rachel, like we, we don't know what we would do without you setting up this AAC system for them. Like you've made such a profound impact, but I think conversely, like so many of our kids have set, made such a huge impact in our lives. Um, and so, you know, reach out to all of those, those parents, you guys, you, you're listening, you're like, you, you know, I do have that one or two students that I'm still think about, um, you know, reach out to them, see how they're doing and, you know, communicate that. Um, because I'm sure, you know, the same way that we love hearing feedback that, you know, the work we do matters, I'm sure parents would love to hear, you know, my child was able to make a huge impact in, you know, this therapist or this teacher's life there you go just connect with people share people need to hear these stories and hear the affirmation on both every in every direction yeah especially because it's like our work is hard and sometimes it feels really challenging and it's like you said chris like we all got into this because we you know want to help kids and we want to teach and you know we have that ability and so it's like celebrating these amazing connections and these you know, kids that have made such an impact in our, in our careers and our lives. Um, it drives us to keep doing what we're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, all right. I, I don't think there's a good transition into the interview. There's just, a, it's just, it is what it is today. So Rachel, tell us a little bit about what people are about to listen to. So we had the opportunity to do a live um, fireside chat, if you will, with AAC Accessible. And um, you and I, Chris, sat and talked all about the assessment process for AAC. And we did a deep dive. We answered questions. It was a live event. And then, of course, we asked, hey, can we take this recording and air it on the podcast? Um, and so they were like, of course. So this is uh, Chris and I doing a fireside chat with AAC Accessible. If you enjoy talking with tech, we could use your help in spreading the word about the podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. The more positive reviews the podcast gets, the easier it becomes for others to find it. The more people who find the podcast, the more the word spreads about how to effectively consider and implement AAC. And who doesn't want that? If that sounds good to you, please take a moment and give the podcast a quick review. We'd so very much appreciate it. Now, let's get back into the episode. I'm going to turn it over to Rachel and Chris now. They're here to share their expertise in helping us choose AAC for students. Um, and I'm super excited to hear how that overlaps with, um, with multi-tiered systems of support in the school setting too. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys and I'll be watching for questions and speckling them in as they come in. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're excited to be here. Chris, I feel like we should introduce ourselves. I'm Rachel Madel. This is Chris, Chris Bouguet, my co-host on the 
Talking with Tech Podcast. Um, Chris and I are so lucky to be able to do a podcast every week, and we've been doing it for almost, almost five years. Almost. Five. I know. It feels insane, actually, that it's been almost five years, but here we are, almost five years later. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm an AT specialist, I guess you could call me, but I'm a speech language pathologist. I own a practice in LA but I geek out on technology for communication and I just love doing events like this. I love presenting on the topic of AC and um, I do a lot of coaching in my practice, working with families um, and super excited to talk all about selection. I feel like there's a lot of interesting, uh, hopefully interesting gems of wisdom we're going to share today that maybe you haven't heard of before. So Chris, I'm going to let you take over. Okay, so I'm Chris Bouguet, and um, I am also a speech-language pathologist, but um, about three years into my career, I guess like 24 years ago or something, twenty whatever, many years ago, three years into my career, the school district that I work for said, hey, do you want to be one of the founding members of our assistive technology team? So I have always been, ever since then, I said yes, and then ever since then, I've been on the assistive technology team. Now I'm the assistive technology specialist for my school district, which is up here in the Northern Virginia area. So you've got Rachel, who's out in LA and the West Coast, who works in private practice. And then you got me out on the East Coast, who works in public education. And um, that's what, what I think helps bring some flavor to the podcast each week is that we have our uh, different roles in our day jobs, but with a very aligned perspective when it comes to how to address concerns around AAC and how to look at AAC in general. And that brought us together and brought us even closer over these last five years. The podcast is Talking With Tech. What do you think, Rachel? I love this. I mean, I feel left out. I don't have my background. <laughs> you have <laughs> your I shirt. I have my t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So the so, podcast so comes out every week, right, Rachel? Yeah. And it's a, our website's talkingwithtech.org. So it's a really useful resource, especially because there's a search function. And I like to share this when we talk about it, because I use the search function of my own podcast website all the time when I'm like, oh, I need to find some, you know, podcast episodes around literacy or critical visual impairment. You just simply type in whatever keyword you're looking for and all of those episodes come up. So um, it feels like probably a little overwhelming when you go on our website because we have five years worth of podcasts, but you can really get specific when you search in the uh, search bar and get specific episodes. So I use that feature all the time. So we're going to talk about assessment today. This is this is a topic that I am very passionate about. Yeah. <laughs> Many years ago, I read a blog post by a parent named uh, Dana Nieder. And uh, I remember I, I remember reading this blog post thinking, that's me. I'm I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the one she's writing about here. And what she was writing about was a, from a parent perspective about how um, there are people that might be working out in educational institutions that are saying no to kids with AAC or making them jump through certain hoops to get AAC or um, and get different forms of AAC and then essentially putting barriers in front, uh, unnecessary barriers um, in front of families to getting the, the, the tool that they need, let alone the support to how to use the tool. And I remember this is many, many years ago thinking, oh my goodness, I think I might be the one gatekeeping. Um, and that immediately, I shouldn't say immediately, that was one of the many th indicators that said I need to change my practice. I need to stop what I'm doing, reevaluate and do it differently. Um, and uh, that led me on a different path about thinking about AAC selection from a from a specialist uh, evaluation, one person makes the decision or makes recommendations to a team of people who sort of have to either agree or disagree. I wanted to reimagine how that could look. Um, and I'm happy to say that I think a lot of people around the country have had that same sort of epiphanies, if not at the world, epiphanies about that, about AAC as technology has changed. Uh, so could the dynamics about the evaluation process, the assessment process, and the selection process. In my own experience, because I'm on the private practice side of things, um, oftentimes families are coming to me 
because they went, you know, to their school district and said, Hey, I want an AAC assessment and they got denied. And so I oftentimes I'm working with families that got denied access to AAC or um, not yet or not ready or all these kind of uh, what we know now are definitely myths. Um, there's no prerequisites for access to AAC especially high-tech, robust language systems, which is something that Chris and I are really passionate about advocating for. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about assessment, I mean, I think the first thing that we're talking about here is just like, you need to be aware that there's people out there who have limiting beliefs of what children with complex communication needs can do. Um, you know, we believe that all kids have the ability to learn how to communicate with AAC if we give them the opportunity to. And so many of our kids are not given that opportunity. That blog post, Chris, that you're referencing by Dana Nieder, she talks about how so many speech therapists were the gatekeepers to her daughter's access to communication. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to be the gatekeepers. If you're listening to this, like, do not be the gatekeeper that says, no, this, you know, child can't do it. Um, you know, the belief in a child being able to access communication with the right tool and the right support around them um, is something that we really have to champion first and foremost. You hear it all the time. You hear little stories from uh, an OT, a PT, a, uh, a, a special ed teacher, a general ed teacher, an administrator, a speech language pathologist. They all might have said, they might have all said about a student, they might have all said these words. Oh, wow. We gave them an AAC device or we gave them the right supports. And we were so surprised at what they could do. They really surprised us and was like, well, what if we just believed in every kid that way? So that wasn't a surprise. What if we expected that was how it was going to work? Um, then we wouldn't have to wait to be surprised. We would be planning for it. One other thing I'll add, because I feel like sometimes, um, you know, perhaps a SLP or AT or AAC specialist is recommending a system um, that maybe isn't robust. So, you know, something that like a core board or I don't know, a go talk or something like that. Right. And maybe the therapist is like, well, let's get, you know, some success here. And then maybe we can transition down the line. I think the problem is, especially, you know, with the high turnover of therapists and teachers and all these things is that, you know, we start with the best of intentions to transition on, but then we get stuck. And so many of the kids that I work with in my practice, I'm like, why are we still on a go talk right now? You know, like there's so many more options out here. And, you know, I think that that's another thing to kind of think about is that, you know, if we can, there's no reason to not start with a high tech robust language system. Um, I think that's a myth out there. Like, oh, I have to start with PECs because that's what we've always done. And that's what we'll always do. And it's like, no, that's outdated. Like we don't have to start with PECs. Like, and I think the biggest thing with PECS is like, oh, it teaches initiation. So does learning how to press a button on an, a high-tech speech generating device. Um, so I just like want to kind of point that out because I feel like those are some potential like roadblocks or things that kind of are misconceptions when you're thinking about AAC selection for a student. Funny, Rachel, I was just listening to the latest podcast episode and um, it was a, a recording we did with a couple of uh, educators and the point that was being made in the most recent episode, just listening back, because I'm a listener to the podcast, just like I'm a, someone who helps make it, right? Um, the the point that was being made in the in the episode was that this is not new anymore. Like a robust, uh, so high tech, robust AAC has been around since the early 80s. It's been affordable for the masses for the last 10 years. So you have more speech therapists, more teachers, more educators, more family members who know how to do this um, than ever before. The other thing that I think is really important is um, we talk a lot on the podcast and when we do presentations about EVP, evidence-based practice. That is a term thrown around like, um, <laughs> like a basketball in an NBA game. <laughs> like it is just like people know, oh, and yeah, of course, evidence-based practice. Yeah, though no, that's evidence-based. Yes. But the, the problem is, is that that definition is not universal across professions. So what a evidence-based practice means to a speech therapist that actually knows what they that means to the American Speech and Hearing Association, the national organization in America that um, 
that sort of governs and guides um, speech language pathologists. So one, they have to know what the definition is. That is not the same as other organizations that uh, that talk about evidence-based practice, maybe um, organizations related to autism or something. So what does that mean to us, Rachel? What's I know in ASHA, there's three criteria, and one of those criteria is? One of those criteria is evidence, like research, what everyone thinks about, right? Like that's the, the number one thing that I think everyone's like, oh, evidence-based practice just means research. It's actually not. It's a three-prong. It's a three-prong, right? It's a triangle. First yes. one is evidence. So number one is, yeah, what is the science saying about this? Which is so, which is a really good one to have, right? We want to have something that has research behind it. And then the second principle, again, that everyone sort of knows or talks about or knows about intuitively is, well, hey, um, what are other professionals saying are, is good stuff? Like if this works for other professionals, then maybe it would work for me. Uh, maybe people have been around the block a couple of times, right? But this is where it often stops. It's just those two things. And that's where it gets dangerous because if it's just what the science says, the science, the questions we could be asking during the scientific uh, studies could be the wrong questions. And if we just listen to professionals, well, professionals can get biased very easily. So this third part of the triangle, Rachel, I feel like this is the most significant and most important. And with this last leg of the triangle, with 10 years since having, uh, I'm going to call it more affordable, robust AAC, we have more people than ever that can be um, evidenced in this part of the tri triangle. And so what are we talking We're about? We're talking about listening to AAC users themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. Why don't we just listen to the people that have come out the back end, being able to say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Let's do the things they said, hey, this worked for me and this didn't work for me. Bringing us back to, you brought up PEX, Rachel. <laughs> I did so it. I, I brought it up it. right out the gate. <laughs> for all the PEX lovers that are listening to this right now, oh, I've been using PEX for a long time. Yes, show us. Show us one person who goes back to you and says, or anyone. You know, anyone, I, I, I've said it on the podcast multiple times. I say it at every presentation. I'm saying it here now. Find one person, not a parent, not a professional, one individual who comes back and says, yes, that's what helped me become better at language. I, I have yet to meet, meet them, which is why I've converted my thought. I think it's one of the reasons, Rachel, you're not a fan of PEX. It's because what we have heard from uh, AAC users is give us robust language, give us a keyboard, give us um, multiple languages. If we speak multiple languages and multiple languages are spoken in our home um, and with our family, give us um, uh, uh someone modeling to us on how to use that and teaching us how to do that. Give us these things and give it to us as fast as possible. Don't put any more prerequisites in front of us. Do that as fast as possible. That is what's worked for me. That is what worked for us. That is what will work for future people that you're working with. So one more thing I'll add to that amazing list, Chris, that you just spewed off so efficiently and nicely um, is motor planning. We know from AAC users who tell us, like Chris Klein, hey, don't move the buttons around. I need to learn the motor plans. It's one of my biggest gripes with picture exchange and pecs is that every time we're throwing up these pictures on the front of a binder and they're in a different order. So it requires visual discrimination to see what my options are to communicate. And it's never the same every single time. It's always different. And so how can we expect our kids to become proficient communicators when every single time they have to actually discriminate each word and each icon that we're putting on the screen or sorry, on the binder. And let's face it, you look at those icons and you cover up that text. You wouldn't know what that is. You wouldn't know what those icons are on any given system. Do it. Go ahead and just cover up and add, go at, bring one of those systems to your own kids, to a partner, to a friend, and just be like, what do you think this picture is? What do you think this picture is? Covering up the text. They won't know. And we're asking kids to identify those pictures, know what they mean, know it with, without instruction and then move them around like you said rachel okay so i'm used to what this thing is i know where it is but now it's all around it's like if you took um if i taught you chinese on a keyboard 
And then I moved all the symbols around on that keyboard. You'd be like, where are the Chinese? Chris, you taught me Chinese, but now the symbols are different on different places on the keyboard. You would be so frustrated and lost. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, they, they plateaued at PEX. But for whatever reason, that's the the golden key that gets them access to high tech AAC. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Enough of our diatribe here on PEX, but you can both, everyone can kind of see your feelings on it. Um, but I mean, it's an important conversation because still I'm seeing these questions in Facebook groups. I'm reading reports. I'm like, it, it, this is insane to me. It's insane to me. Um, so the people who are listening to this have an opportunity to start thinking a little bit differently and advocating for what we know AAC users are telling us has been helpful and also, we haven't even talked about the trauma that AAC and especially autistic adults have talked about with texts. We, we're not going to dive into that, but like there's that whole other element too. So, you know, we have to listen to AAC users. So let's talk about the selection process for a second here, Rachel, because I'm sure that people have questions, but let's just talk about what a traditional assessment process looks mm -hmm. like. And let's be brutally honest with what that is, right? Mm -hmm. So, so... Um, for some reason, somewhere along the line, probably for insurance purposes, it has been determined that the way to do an AAC assessment is you provide two to three, usually three things to somebody, and you see which one does best, right? And that's the one that you build a case around and give evidence to, to support that this might be the thing that we go with long-term. And that particular... Um, uh, process is problematic. The first of all is how did you pick those three things? Like in the know, you might pick a go talk for knowing that it's limiting. What I mean, but go talk for is this is a, 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 a plastic device that you put has four cells on it. You could put four words on it. You could, uh, and you could start there and then you know, that's not going to have robust language. It doesn't have a keyboard. It doesn't have, um, uh, a very good voice output. It doesn't have consistent motor plans. It has all these things that you know won't work, but you got to try it so you can put it in this report to say that it's not going to work, right? That's wasting the student's time, wasting the individual's time, wasting your time, wasting valuable money and effort. Um, then, okay, let's say you do pick like three robust systems. I'm going to pick uh, um, system number one, system number two, system number three, and they all have lots of words, Rachel. They all have a keyboard associated with it. They're all on an iPad that has good voice output or maybe some other device that has really good voice output. But I'm going to just throw three things at a student and see which one comes out of the wash. Well, you just mentioned motor plan planning as a thing, right? So if I'm going to throw three things at a, at a student, you might go, okay, well, which one am I going to do first? Am I going to pick option A, option B, or option C? Which one am I going to give them? And then the next question comes, how long do I show it to them? Like, am I just trying things for like a few minutes or am I trying things for a few hours? Do I give it to them for two weeks? Does If you are saying two weeks, does that and count snow days? What if they get sick? What if the teacher gets sick? Like there's a billion variables here that are hard to account for to make it an equal, um, uh, to eliminate variables. So, okay. So you've, let's say you've given it to somebody for a little while and you started teaching them, showing them, look, this is how you say go or eat or whatever's motivating. Then what happens? Okay. We've had it for a little while. Let me pull that away. Give you option number B to see how you did do with that, right? Option B but you've just spent how much time teaching the motor plan for one or two of those things to see what they came out in the wash. So now I have to relearn where the same word is in a different place. How is that going to work? Well, of course, the first one will likely do better than the second one. So this whole thing, I could go on and on with why this is problematic. Maybe there's a better way, Rachel. One thing I want to add, Chris, is I feel like one of the things that I learned early on in the assessment process that was super valuable was creating a team-based approach to AAC assessment. And I did this because I, yeah, let's have a dance party, get teams on board. I did not do this when I first started. I was like, I'm an AAC specialist and I'm gonna come in and do an assessment and tell everybody what my recommendations are. And so, um, I want to kind of share just like the, the problem with that. 
And I think that a lot of times, you know, this is what's happening in school districts and private practices, you know, across the board. It's like we have one, you know, AAC specialist that's coming in and like doing an assessment and then saying like, this is the, this is the thing you guys, um, instead of, you know, what I do now, now is following the set framework by Joy Zabala, um, and really just collecting an entire team together and talking in a lot of details about the upfront, kind of the upfront work of an AAC assessment is talking about all the different needs of the student, um, and getting really clear about what, features we need for an AAC system um, to be successful. And the reason this is so important and the aha moment that I had was, you know, if I always come in and they look at me like, wow, she's the AAC person, she'll tell us what to do. I've lost my opportunity to build capacity within teams. Um, I've lost my opportunity to say, AAC is for me and for you and for you and for everybody sitting around this table. Um, it's on all of us and we can all come together and figure out a potential solution and tool for the student. And what happens when you do that is if people around the table are bought in to the assessment and the eventual selection of a tool, they're already bought in to the implementation side of AAC. And we know that's where AAC fails. It's we could have the best, greatest system with all the features matching perfectly to the student that's in front of us. But if no one's modeling on the AAC and there's disconnect with like ABA thinks it should have been this system and that system, and then like we're not going to succeed in the implementation phase, which is way more important than finding the best, you know, quote unquote AAC system for a student. It's not the best system if no one uses it and the child can't use it to communicate. So that was like an aha moment that I had um, figuring out like when I get the whole team on board up front, then the implementation becomes a lot easier because everyone bought in. They all made this decision with me, you know? 100%. I've lived that experience where I'd been the guru that came in and said, what you need is X. And, you know, yeah, there you go. There's X. Now you know what to, you, you know, problem solved. X is the thing that you need. Go implement it. And I walk away, patting myself on the back, coming home at night, talking to my wife. Oh, great job today. I did. Oh, I felt so good. I was able to get this kid the exact thing he needs. And I feel like a freaking rock star. But then a couple of months later, go back and the things on the shelf, no one's implemented because they didn't have buy-in and the expert coming in deeming what they should do has never worked. Well, I should say hasn't worked as well as I thought it was going to work. So what we really need is that team-based approach. It is exactly what you're talking about, Rachel. And that has been my experience when we've done that is pulling the private speech therapist, the parent, the, the, the individual user themselves, if they can be there, um, all the different stakeholders and have a conversation about it coming to a, with using Joy Zabala's set framework as a, uh, as talking points and as a way to organize the conversation to then not unilaterally decide, but collaboratively decide on what you'd like to implement. And how wrong are you going to be if you've made sure it was robust, made sure it had a keyboard. When I say robust, it means it had thousands of language, or thousands of words. Make sure it has access to the morphemes on there. So it's not just the words, but the little parts of words. And if anyone's listening to this and doesn't know what that is, I'm talking about ING. I'm talking about ED. I'm talking about S, uh, like plural S and possessive S. Are those on the th tool? Because those are very early concepts that um, just like certain words, that might be coming from a someone who's learning language. So let's make sure those are on the tool. So those are the sorts of things that we would want to make sure are being talked about. And I already mentioned uh, the the being culturally responsive to the uh, the environment that the person is in when they're not in school, right? And making sure that's part of the system. So I think those are the the some of the key factors that we'd want to discuss. And then we come out of that meeting going, yes, let's roll. Let's implement this together. And it feels like, oh, it's so hard to get a whole team together to do all these things. And Kimberly, I see you in the chat, you're saying you're starting a private practice. Um, it is, that's accurate. It's hard to get everybody on the same page and you know in the same meeting. But when you do all that upfront work, it makes it really easy to walk into a system that the team feels would be a good thing to trial. and 
like Chris mentioned, like, do we really need to just have two other systems for whatever, you know, what is the, what is the purpose for that? Just because that's the way it was done before, that's the way we do it now, or just because that's the way that the district does it, you know, it's just like, we're really trying to get you guys to question the way that things have always been done. Just because PEX was always done first doesn't mean PEX should always be done first anymore. You know, it's like, we need to evolve. And so, you know, if we know that spending, you know, we could spend hours and hours and hours individually assessing students and spending a lot of time on the assessment and this long report and all these things, but we're all strapped for time. So why would we spend all that time doing all these individual AAC assessments and all of these beautiful 25 page reports when we could focus all that energy on the thing that matters, which is how do I use this tool? How do I coach communication partners in using this tool? Um, and so in my own practice, I've made a complete shift. I'm like, hey, we're gonna, we're not even gonna call this as an assessment. This is just like a consult package. And it's basically me doing a little bit of trialing and information gathering. But then I'm like, let's get in there. Let's start using this. Actually, mom, you're gonna be modeling language here. I'm gonna show you what this looks like because we know that the implementation side of things is where everyone, it all, it all falls apart with implementation because we don't have enough time to do all the teaching and coaching and all the support with all the people that are around a student. So there has to be a better way, Chris. Beth has a great question. She says, what about insurance? Have you been able to justify this with insurance? So this is one of the great things about working in public education is that, no, I don't have to work through the, the school district funds what is necessary based on the IEP team decision, right? And that process is not tied to some sort of private insurance. Thing is, that private insurance process of testing three things existed probably before we were doing really robust, meaning 15, 20 years ago, those insurance things schemes were developed, um, which pre-existed doing AEC assessments or robust AEC systems assessments like we know them now. So um, you don't have to be beholden to that system in a public education environment. What is your experience, Rachel, private? I can talk about the private practice side. My, I'm super lucky that my practice doesn't take insurance like on private pay um, because that, that can be a huge roadblock. I, I have done funding reports for, you know, dedicated devices and you don't have to trial three options. You just have to consider three. So I think that's like a, a common, you know, misconception is that we have to actually trial three different things. Um, so in a situation like that, like I'll figure out what I actually want to trial. I'll trial that. And then in my report, I'll say this system was considered but it wasn't robust enough because the communication board's not going to be enough. And I'll just uh, kind of document the considerations and why they are not sufficient for the individual. The other thing I'll, make, I'll comment about on this about insurance is I always think of these, these schemes were developed by people. Like they weren't like, uh, I don't know, they weren't, I don't know, aliens didn't come down and put them in place, right? This is people generated these processes, which means people can change them. They can evolve. They can be amended. They can say, does this still make sense in 2022, three, four, or in the future? Let's redesign that. Uh, if people were made it, then people can unmake it and make something new. Now, okay, I have a, I have a, I have a question to, to follow Great. up, Rachel. Okay. So let's say either you're doing traditional model of doing assessments or you've done these committee sort of meetings. And uh, again, let's just say two, by the way, Yes, it takes time to have a meeting with all the different stakeholders and uh, use the set framework to get the ideas out and then collaborate and use feature matching to make a decision about the thing you want to try. But it's a kid's language for their life. Like maybe we sit, we, we take a hot second and, and find the time to do that, right? Like maybe that's okay. The shortcut that maybe we can use down the line is once somebody, um, once we've done this a number of times, do you see patterns emerge in your neck of the woods of students that might already fit a certain profile? Uh, they're direct selectors. We already know we want something with, like I said, all the morphemes, all the words, um, uh, a, a, uh, lots of pictures, uh, all the things, voice output, right? Is there, could we start to think about a multi-tiered system of support, meaning what supports are 
do we make available our tier one supports to everybody, right? We might say right now, a core vocabulary board based on a robot system might be a good tier one support, right? So if you're using touch chat, lamp words for life, cough drop, speak for yourself, the, uh, uh, TD snap. I mean, the list goes on. I don't want to leave any out. I hesitated to even mention any because we would leave some out. But if you had one that you used a lot, could that be your core board that just everybody gets? Um, day one, we don't do an assessment. You just get it. And then we tweak from there because we know that wouldn't work for everybody. That MTSS model says tier one, everybody gets this. Tier three means, well, tier two, just to say it is like groups of kids might get it. And tier three would be an individual support. Only this one kid it gets this thing. So if a kid did not fit that profile, okay, we need to uh, be looking at doing a more robust assessment, pull that whole team together to talk about what those needs are, um, maybe have a much longer dialogue about this thing. But do you have to do that for every individual student? Or can you hit the ground running with something and then tweak and customize? Another thing to think about is, you know, we're oftentimes thinking about feature matching, right? What features do we need? And how can we match that with what the student needs as far as a tool. And one of the most important features for me when I'm doing an assessment is knowing what the people in front of me, parents, other therapists, teachers, what familiarity they have with robust AAC options. Um, many of these AAC systems are similar, right? Most of them support motor planning. They have keyboards, they have word prediction, you know, and so if I can find a system that people have familiarity with, that's bumping it to the top of my list because ultimately, again, AAC fails during the implementation phase when people are like, I've never seen this. I don't know what I'm doing. And if I can alleviate some of that by introducing a system that people have familiarity with, I'm more likely to be successful in the implementation side of things. Rachel, this is a great segue into the question that just came into the chat. So it says, how long do you typically give your students with a particular communication software before you determine this is or isn't the most appropriate fit? And so that is an excellent question. Um, so the first thing is it depends, of course, right? Um, and the second answer is I'm going to say a year, but that's really not the right answer. So let me explain that into deeper, deeper, because I know that's convoluted. So... First of all, am I doing sort of the old approach of uh, picking something and putting it in place? Again, I have really a lot of problems with that. I don't have a good answer for you for how long to try something to see if it's working or not working. But if you went through an entire group of people asking questions and collaboratively decided this is the thing we need to try, the next question I'm going to ask you is how wrong do you think you're going to be? Like how many people are you be like, yeah, we screwed that one up. Yeah, it should have been this instead of that. I just don't think that happens very frequently if you're spending a lot of time asking the right questions and asking uh, all the stakeholders. And then what Rachel just said is so important. If something's not working, meaning if you're collecting data on language and the language is not growing, do not rush to go change the app because it's likely that you made the right decision in the first place. It's the supports around that decision that are not working. It's you chose the right system, but are we, is everybody trained? Are we then coaching people on the skills of good modeling? Are there peers in the environment that are modeling? Uh, are there explicit instruction around some of the words? Oh, did we have a turnover rate? We're at, at the time of this recording, we are smack dab in the middle of the great resignation and teachers are fleeing like, like, <laughs> mm, what's a good analogy here? <laughs> I was waiting uh, for it. Here. I was like, he's going to go for it. <laughs> and then the analogies today. <laughs> uh, they are fleeing like um, fleas from a flea collar. I don't know. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> but wow. they're just they're leaving they're leaving right and so the consistency for for students is not always there like oh we just rachel came into your district showed you coached you got you up to speed and then you left and now there's another team member in there right so it's those sorts of things that are those extraneous factors that are much more likely the problem than the app and then the reason I say a year is that once you've decided on a thing, your IEP team meets and you put that as an accommodation. We're trying this. 
the, the clock starts, right? And so now, of course, you can always readjust throughout the year. It's meant to be a fluid document that you can meet on and make adjustments, but you know at least that you're going to meet a year from then, right? At, at an annual IEP, um, you're going to meet um, to, to, to reevaluate and decide whether it's how things are going. So again, I would really lean into if the progress, if you're showing a lack of progress, then what other supports can we put in place? It'd be very, very rare that I would suggest that you change the tool. I also want to add one more thing that I think is such a huge thing when we're thinking about kids with complex communication needs. Are they motivated by the vocabulary that we're targeting on their AAC system? Like, have we found things that they're excited to talk about? Because, and I'll give an example. I was reading a report and of course it was a denial of AAC. It was like, could it do high tech? Recommending text. <laughs> and so I looked, I was kind of reading this with a fine tooth comb. I was going through it thinking like, what was the disconnect here? Because this is a student that I then assessed did beautifully with a high tech, robust language system. And so I'm like, what was the disconnect here? And I'm reading through the report and it says um, the clinician was detailing exactly what they did in the assessment. And one of the things that they were trying to do was have the student request colors of markers. And the first question I asked myself was, do they care what color marker they get? Like, I don't think so. Like, this is the, the litmus test for whether or not a student can, you know, be successful with high-tech AAC. I'm like, we need, it, especially in an assessment situation, but just in general, we need to find things that are really exciting for kids to talk about. Um, during an assessment, especially, I'm like, the first question I ask is, what's your kid most motivated by? Like the like creme de la creme of all the things, what are they motivated by? We're using that. No matter what it is, that's what we're using. Because um, that's how you're going to get a really valid read on whether a student you know, can access you know, the icons and vocabulary and things like that on an AAC system. And just let's give it a quick example there, Rachel, because I think people might say, well, my kid's really motivated by marshmallows. So can I, should I put marshmallows on there? The answer is yes. You could use that fringe vocabulary word. But what they might also be motivated by is this, this cup of water. And this cup of water is filled. And you know what I do with this cup of water? Oh, no, I dropped a little bit on my head. Oh, I'm laughing because there's water spilling down my head. And what I showed them to say when I go to do it again is do it or do, do. And every time I'm dumping that water on my head, they're hitting the word do, which is showing somebody that I'm doing an action. So it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a thing that they're motivated by. It could be an action that they're motivated by, something that's hilarious. Who doesn't like dumping water on Chris's head? I definitely love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> other thing I'll add to that, Chris, is we're oftentimes working with a lot of autistic students and oftentimes the most motivating things are sensory related. Um, so don't forget about sensory stuff, sensory activities, swinging, sliding, deep pressure, all the things collaborating with OTs can be really helpful in a situation. Um, and those are the kinds of, you know, vocabulary, uh, that we want to be programming and using especially during a trialing, you know, process, but also just in general, like we need to find things that kids are excited to communicate about. Exactly. All right. There's another question in the chat. It says, um, how do you approach a teacher slash team when they report that a student newer to AAC and in kindergarten is hitting a lot of buttons on his device and laughing and other kids in the class are interested in the voice output and wanting to touch it too. So the teacher takes it away because it's too distracting. The teacher would like support in this. Okay. Well, <laughs> you want to go first, Rachel? Um, I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say. Okay. Uh, should I go? Should I go? Okay. All right. Um, okay. So first thing, when I read a question like this, I am excited when a child is using AAC in any context. <laughs> so the first thing I, I do is when I hear this is I'm like, yes, uh, they're amazing. Do I understand the problems in, you know, school situations where kids are kind of saying lots of words in situations where maybe they need to be quiet or they're sitting in the class and all those things? Yes. But again, you know, we have to allow a child who just got introduced to an AAC system the time to explore their words and their voice. Like, 
think about, you know, a child's experience. It says, I think this kid's in kindergarten. Their whole life, they haven't been able to, you know, communicate with, you know, consistent access, I'm sure, to verbal speech. And so, like, are we surprised that a child's going to be exploring their device and hitting words and hearing what they say? Um, I don't think so. The other thing I want to share is I just shared this actually on uh, my Instagram. I did an Instagram reel on this and it's just like such a powerful story. Um, I introduced a high-tech AAC system to this little girl. This was years ago, but she, she, everyone was like, she's not using it. She's playing with it. She's stimming on it. It's not functional. She's never using it accurately. Everyone was all up in arms. I'm like, everybody calm down, keep modeling. It's okay. And and after a couple months, we realized that this little girl had memorized every single word on her system. It was like a party trick. I was like, umbrella. And she would be like, bam, bam, bam. It was amazing. So all of the stimming, playing, all these things that we categorize as not functional was actually this student learning where every single word was on their device. The kind of additional thing that I want to add with this story is, well, first, we don't know, you know, why a student's selecting the buttons that they're selecting and using, you know, the language that they're using. So we have to just attribute meaning to that, um, which was the strategy that I gave this uh, team. But she knew where every single word was on her system, but she still wasn't really using language functionally with meaning. And that's because it takes all of the adults around her to model language in meaningful ways and really exciting opportunities for her to actually learn where the, what those words mean and how to use them, you know, in a meaningful way. And so she knew where every single word was, but she needs us as adults to model that language for her. Those are awesome answers, Rachel. And you, I'm glad you went first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think there's a couple of layers to this as well that I want to get even deeper mm -hmm. with. So the first thing that I want to bring up on top of that, because you, you so it's so great. People might say they're stimming, they're not stimming, they're exploring. I um, mean, if they are stimming, there's a purpose behind that. Don't take it away. Um, here, this particular student is described as a kindergarten student. So you're right. This sounds like exploration. Mm -hmm. Now it says here, they're distracting other students. Um, the teacher takes it away because it's too distracting, right? It's kindergarten. How much whole group instruction are you doing that our kids are getting distraction? How are being distracted from your whole group thing? Okay. Even if it was small group, like they're kindergarten students, you would expect to maybe maintain their attention for two, three minutes, five minutes at the most. Um, a good rule of thumb I often heard was attention should be geared towards age, right? So if they're uh, five years old, like most kindergartners, then expect five minutes of attention, right? And then you would adjust, right? So what are we talking about here, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So um, Let's not think of it as distraction. Let's think of it as play and exploration and learning what these words are. Take them as an opportunity to teach what the AAC is meant to do, what the words are that they're saying, um, and act them out and have fun with it and turn it into an experience. Uh, Beth and I are got have the great fortune of being co-authors of a book called Inclusive Learning 365, EdTech Strategies for Every Day of the Year. We're two of four authors of that book. And I, I'm just bet I'm reading best mind right now in that we would say you could re-engineer the environment to make this appropriate and acceptable instead of a, maybe an, an old school way of thinking of school as you sit and listen to the teacher and do what the teacher said. Let's create an experience where th this is embraced and, and, um, uh, and encouraged rather than discouraged. Okay. Second thing I'd like to say, this is not anything I would do, but I would love the sentiment to be there. Imagine following this teacher to their staff meeting and in their staff meeting, they're sitting next to their buddy, right? And the principal in that staff meeting says something, I don't know, that they're not necessarily agree with. And they just turn over to the side and they say like a little sidebar comment to their shoulder buddy. You've, you've been in meetings, right? Everyone's been in meetings. You've done this. You've been there when someone else does that. Imagine the principal whips out from behind them, the roll of duct tape goes over and puts it over their mouth. Hey, you're distracting me. So I'm taking away your ability to communicate. That's essentially the analogy here. Uh, I love my analogies, Rachel. <laughs> um, that's essentially the analogy here. So would I actually do that? Would I have a roll of duct tape and sit in it? No, I wouldn't. But that brings us to the third point, which is really the first part of this question, which is how do you approach somebody, right? So now that we've got the, 
the mentality straight and the mindset straight and how the intervention might change to be embrace this and accept it and honor it um, and respect it is now how do we actually convince somebody to do it? <laughs> and that is the third part of that question that is probably where the rubber hits the road, right? And the way I think we would approach that, I think the way I would approach that is by asking a lot of questions. Well, why do you think uh, that's distracting. Hmm. What do you think would happen if we just let it go for a few minutes longer? Um, what do you think would happen if um, we did more small group rather than a large group activity? What do you think would happen if we gave the other kids communication that is boards or something that is similar to that kid's AAC? How do you think that changes things? And I would probably pepper them with questions, getting them to reflect on their own practices. I think that's probably how I'd approach it. I feel like just generally speaking, when you're trying to get someone to buy in to anything, asking more questions serves you so much better than telling people what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do. And the moment you go in somewhere and start saying like, here's this and this and this, and I think you should do this. People are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't come into my classroom telling me what to do. And so, you know, we can really get all the work that we need to get done by building strong relationships with people and asking more reflective questions um, can one, help us get to the bottom of what's the real problem here what's the roadblock what's the limiting belief and then additionally you know we can ask strategic questions like chris had mentioned so that we're able to showcase right like the the problems with taking a student's communication device away um so i agenda i tend to just like ask more questions in most of the situations that i'm in are there other questions to be asked this has been a really great talk, you guys. Yeah. I would make, oh, go ahead. No, you first, Chris. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to make one kind of a summary point here is that as the school year starts, at the time of recording, this is like in our neck of the woods, teachers came back today, literally today. So um, there's a lot of new energy around the school year. It always that like, oh my gosh, there's anticipation of what's going to happen this year. So the question that I would throw back to the people listening right now, no matter what time of year it is that you listen to this, is what from our talk today could you take away and implement immediately. Um, one other suggestion I would have, like reflect on that. Well, what change could I make during the school year that I could do? Like, could I try putting a core board from an AAC system as a tier one support everywhere? Maybe just for one student, instead of doing an evaluation the old way, I'll try it the new way. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon recently is environmental core boards, right? It's such a, what I mean by that is the playground board or something like that. You, you're going to see a bunch of those show up on Facebook when we get it working. Um, and, uh, and there's a great sense of like, look what we did. You know, we made this communication board and then I see them posted and they're like on the kindergarten playground. Five, five feet up in the air, <laughs> like, like it's posted up on the wall. It's way higher than anyone could ever reach. Um, and how often are you actually using that when you're on the top of the slide or on the swings, right? Um, and so I feel like it's such a good thing to do. I'm not saying not to do it. It's such a good visual about how we're, our environment is trying to be inclusive and trying to support communication. But what immediately should come along with that is a communication committee of students that say, okay, well, where should we put that? Have the students in that school become invested in creating it, maintaining it, cleaning it, making smaller versions of it? Oh, can we make a smaller version and you can be on the lamination committee and you can cut these out and we can put them, put them all over the playground. Where should these go? Can we put them on the swings? Can we put them in the slides? Can we put them in the hallways? Can we put them in the cafeteria? Like, so it's not just this one static place and that there's a group of people, students, learn, learners who are learning about communication invested in it and we'll take that with them um it's great if that's the same age as the aac users uh because then that bubble grows with them and comes with them as they move up the the grade level so maybe that's your thing this year but what is your thing going to be love it yeah that's a fun idea i feel like just adding that element of uh, collaboration just makes those boards that are really serving the purpose of awareness, right? So when you walk into a playground and see this giant board, um, having that awareness is fantastic, but how much better to actually bring attention to the students as to why is this board here and what should we do to expand on this idea? I love that. 
Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight and sharing these incredible tips. I really love that you simplified what I think a lot of SLPs and even parents who are navigating the process of assessment, just their head kind of explodes when they think about all the boxes that need to be checked and all the things that need to be done. And I just love the points that you simplified tonight and really helping us all understand that if you've got good questions in mind and robust at the front of your march, then you really can't go wrong a lot of the time. So thank you so very much. Any final remarks that either yes. of you would like to share before we um, end for tonight? I'll go first. I'll go first. Here's what I would say. Yeah. We touched on some of those questions, but there's many more. And it, the podcast is a great place to go back and listen to those. If you're driving around, going to work, if you're you know, going to pick up groceries, whatever you're doing, you're on the treadmill, the podcast can really be, okay, there's another thing that I should be asking at my meetings. There's another thing that I should be talking about to make sure you do have a robust list. So we would invite you. It's a free resource, talkingwithtech.org. Check it yeah, out. Yeah, that was going to be mine. Chris, you stole it. <laughs> you stole mine. Sorry. Listen in the Next podcast. time you'll have That's to say it in unison. <laughs> exactly. Listen yeah. to Talking With Tech at the same time. We're going to practice. Don't worry. Next time will be better, Chris. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you again for giving us your time. Uh, we will post this recording so that people can listen to it all year round. Um, and yeah, I look forward to um, working with you guys again on this topic. It was so needed. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Have- thank you. Have Thanks, everyone. Bye, Anya. Bye, Beth. Bye, everyone.